us, Jesus, forever, forever. You are glorified. You are magnified, lifted high on the praises of your people. Because of your obedience, your faithfulness, And this is why we can endure. Because you endured the cross for the joy set before you. And when we're faced with trials, you are the joy set before us. Life with you, now and forever in your holy presence. Thank you for your obedience. Taking you to the cross, despising its shame. And for the joy set before you, endure. to endure by having you set before us. Thank you that you are joy. You are satisfaction forever. Tell me, do you all know how to pray the Shema? Yes. Oh, I would love to hear it. You lead us. Hear Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. And it shall come to pass if you surely listen to the commandments I command you. Your wine and your oil, if you will eat, and it will be satisfied. I am the 
I'm so glad you're here today. I, I am grateful that we are gathering in order to worship our great and awesome God. But I'm going to do something different. I've never done, I don't think, anything like this before. And we're going to get in the message, I promise. All right. But I think I'd be remiss after 46 years of marriage to thank God for you, Sharon, for your love for God, for your love for me, for your partnership, all the years of ministry. You're a hero. I thank you. <laughs> oh boy. We went together seven years before she forced me to marry her. I, I don't know anybody else. Like I know Sharon and wow. All right. The greats. The greats. Uh, Jesus gave some critical kingdom messages. Last week, we heard the great invitation, where our almighty God desires a relationship with you and me. I, I mean, have you been pinching yourself this whole week after listening to that? That the almighty God says, hey, you're important. I want to be involved in your life. I want you to yoke up with me so I can guide you. I can direct you. I can give you the pace. I can show you what direction to go in. That's God talking to us. And if you do, I will give you rest. Huh. This week, the great commandment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your words, and I thank you for your faithfulness, and I thank you that we can open your word and hear from you today. Lord, we have been praising you. We have heard stories of your faithfulness. And now we ask that you would use your word to convict us. Lord, we know that there are so many other Christians and, and churches that are worshiping together. And we pray for those not only in our state and our country, but all over the world. In particular, Father, we pray for Northbridge and Connection and Redemption sister churches of ours. We pray for all those who are faithfully working downstairs and serving you and telling stories of your grace and wonder to our children. We thank you for the ministries that are going on, and we look forward to what you're going to do, not only today, 
but in the days to come. We thank you, Lord, and ask that you would speak to us, that you would convict us, that you would change us from the inside out. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, Christ's impact was felt in Palestine during that first century. People came to hear the good news and to be healed. The good news of the kingdom was basically, hey, the king has arrived. My reign and my rule is evident. And although you're looking for peace and rest from the Roman Empire, I've come in order to give you life abundant and full. It was at this time that Jesus was drawing all kinds of crowds. Everybody, shall I say, wanted a piece of Jesus. His message, his miracles were all unique. An expert in religious law came up to Jesus and asked a question. Teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life. (laughs) Well, Jesus looked at him and said, well, you know what Moses said. How how did you hear it? What what would you say, Moses? And, And he immediately said this. He goes, well, you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and love others like yourself. And Jesus looked at him and said, oh, right, you do this and you will live. You wonder, though, at that moment, was there a pause? You could maybe hear his mind racing. And then all of a sudden, this official said, well, who's my neighbor? I didn't even wonder about the loving the God part, but, you know, at least back then the religious were, were trained and, and they wanted to dig apart certain things. Okay, Jesus, if I want this eternal life, how, how am I supposed to love my neighbor? Who exactly is my neighbor? Is my neighbor the guy across the street? Is my neighbor? And, and so Jesus told him a story. He said there was a Jew, and this Jew traveled from Jerusalem down to Jericho. But while he was traveling, bandits came and beat him up to a pulp, stripped him down and left him on the side of the road, half dead. Well, just a few moments later, there's a priest And as he saw this man laying there, didn't even go over to him, but stayed on the other side and walked past him. Some more moments had passed, and and there was a Levite, a temple assistant, one that knew all about God. And, And he actually went over and looked at this bloody mess and decided, no, I'm not going to get involved, and he leaves. Then Jesus said there was a despised Samaritan. (laughs) And Jews just 
don't like those guys. And the Samaritan's walking down the road, and all of a sudden he saw this person. He was filled with compassion. He went over to the person. He went and he got some olive oil and, well, washed his wounds, gave him some wine and bandaged up his body. Then he lifted him up on his donkey and brought him to the closest inn, put him up in a room and talked to the innkeeper and said, hey, here is money for my new friend's stay. If for some reason he stays longer, when I come back, I will take care of it. Then Jesus looked right right at him and said, who do you think was the neighbor? Hmm. He answered right away, well, it was the person who was merciful. Merciful. And then Jesus said these words, go and do the same. This is how you love your neighbor. And we're going to come back to the story in just a moment. But it's really interesting that Jesus did not comment on the first part, which was loving your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. Probably because it was so much part of the culture. But we're going to start there. If you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 36. During the last week of Christ's life, On this planet, right before he went to the cross, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What's the most important commandment, Jesus? You can follow along in your Bibles or up on the screen. Teacher. Which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second, which is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Now, to us, we've heard this often, and even this question may seem odd to us. But this was not a new question for the scribes who have been debating it for centuries. They had documented 613 commandments in the law, 248 positive and 365 negative. No person could even hope to know and fully obey all these commandments. So to make it easier, at least to the Pharisees, to those who were interpreting the law, these experts divided the commandments into heavy or important commandments or light or less important commandments. So if a person could, they would major on the important commandments. This was religion at its best, focusing on performance rather than on a relationship that would change your life. And actually, it still happens today. 
So many of us look at the scriptures or so many of us look at our lives and say, what are the most important things that I should obey? And maybe I don't need to focus on these less important things. So Jesus, when he was asked this question, quickly answered the question by quoting two familiar Old Testament scriptures. Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 to 6, and Leviticus 19, 18. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting at verse 4. Let me read for you. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Actually, in a Hebrew family, this was called the Shema. And the Shema was foundational for every practicing Jew. Now, actually, you can continue to read verses 7 all the way down to verse 11. They would actually quote all of that, but they memorized it, and they quoted it twice daily. And even as we opened up the service with a clip from the chosen, Jesus, very naturally, hanging out with the children, just said, hey, I understand you do this every day. Would you quote the Shema for me? And with no hesitation, those children were able to quote the scripture. Listen, pay attention, Israel. This is important. So Jesus really was repeating something that everybody knew. And I think because most people thought they had a relationship with God, he focused on loving God. In this command, the relationship with God is assumed, but loving him is not. And just to be clear, because this has been shared a long time ago, we all don't have a relationship with God in this earth. We are born rebellious, self-focused, arrogant. But God loved us while we were at our worst. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God says that he displayed his love toward us while we were yet sinners. God made the first gracious move toward us. It's called Christmas. Now, many of you know the gospel, But Jesus Christ came because he loved this world. He desired a relationship with you and me. But our sin has separated us from God. So when he died on the cross and he shed his blood, he satisfied God's wrath and paid our debt for sin so that we might be called the sons and the daughters of God. We might have a relationship with God. Now let me say, if you're interpreting love as a feeling, the command, you must love God, will feel quite odd. Biblically, love is giving up your life for another. It's a choice. It's not a feeling. 
Scriptures also tell us that loving God means choosing to obey or to listen to God. This simply means you must spend time with him in his word. And this was emphasized in the Shema. In the last part, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 6, where the scriptures tell us to commit wholeheartedly to the words that I've given you, to these commands which I've given you today. And we read this realistically, and I want to pause for just a moment. Commit wholeheartedly. If you commit wholeheartedly to a diet, (laughs) it changes your life. You only have this many grams or ounces of this, and then you have to combine it with this, and, and this happens over here, and oh man, you have got to be committed wholehearted, or, or oh boy, it doesn't go that well. There's a lot of things we could be committed wholeheartedly to. But right here, the scriptures tell us to be committed with all of your heart to obeying the commands, to listening to me. You know, early in a relationship, when you come to faith in Christ, obedience is something that's really natural. Oftentimes you'll want to get into the word every day or a couple times a day, and, and it will be pretty exciting for you. But his life kind of goes on, and other priorities maybe squeeze the scriptures out, it doesn't become as much of a priority for some. But if you just ask yourself, if God says, commit my commands wholeheartedly, does that mean you open up the word once a week or once a month? Or once a year? My guess is no. It's not committing wholeheartedly. You know, when you first start off obeying Jesus, you obey probably because you ought to obey. This is new for you. But as you spend time with the Lord and as you see who he is and you understand his mercy and his grace, all of a sudden you are drawn to his words. You want to learn more about who he is, how he responds. You keep pinching yourself because you go, I can't believe that the almighty God, the creator of all, desires a relationship with me. Later then you obey because you get to. Because you want to. Because God is so important to you. If you look at the book of John, chapter 14, starting in verses 15 and 21, the apostle John writes this, If you love me, obey my commands. Those who accept my commands and obey them are the ones who truly love me. In 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 5, 
But those who love, excuse me, but those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. This is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Oh, the standard. Is the scripture saying there that loving God is obeying God like Jesus did and living, therefore, like Jesus lived when he was here on the planet? That, that seems like a rather high mark. But that is God's will for every believer. The Holy Spirit comes into your life and begins to chip away the things that don't represent him well. And every day that we walk with God, we reflect God better in our lives, wherever we go. While on earth, Jesus modeled for us what listening to the Father looks like all of his life. But we really remember the words he spoke in the garden right before he went to the cross. Father, this seems kind of hard. I, I look at the cross and I know that's what you're asking me to do. I want to do your will, not mine. Simply put, our obedience shows our love for God and shows that God is living in us. So disobedience means you don't love God and he isn't living in you. Well, one of the good news verses in all the Bible is 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, where we can be assured that we can be reconciled by repenting and confessing our sins. How exciting is that? But if you call yourself a Christian, one who has God living in them, one who listens to the Spirit, you will live like Jesus lived. You know, the Apostle Paul had an amazing relationship with God. We know that in the beginning of his life, he was a Pharisee. In the beginning of his life, he tried to keep the law, but he found out that was not satisfying. He had this dramatic conversion experience when he was going to the city of Damascus, actually going there to destroy Christians. But the Apostle Paul talks about our relationship with Jesus later on in his life. If you turn to Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 7. Very interesting. Because the person who's writing this is at the top of his game. The Apostle Paul, actually, if you would look at success, and you'd look at honor, you'd look at all the different things that people get accolades for, Paul had attained all these things before he met Jesus. And then he met Jesus. Look at verse 7, chapter 3. I once thought these things were valuable. Well, all the accolades, all of my job, and, and the success that I've had. 
But now, Paul writes, I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counted it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with him depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. What Paul is saying is that everything else, the things that used to capture my attention, my job, my house, my investments, things that used to be important are worthless. In fact, in your translation, you'll see garbage, but the actual word here would be manure. Manure. Now, I know manure has some use, but not a lot. And what Paul is saying is this, is as I look at my life and I look at all that I've accomplished and all that was important to me, you want to know what the most important thing now is that I keep connecting with God, that I grow in my relationship with God. That puts everything in perspective. It teaches me how to spend my time. It teaches me how to spend my money. It gives me opportunities to invest not only in people now but later. My relationship with God is critical. And then he says this. Look at verse 12. We'll continue. Verse 12. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things. In other words, he's saying I haven't arrived. My relationship with God is not perfect. It's growing or that I've already reached perfection or maturity. But I press on to possess that perfection, that maturity for which Christ has first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it. I've not arrived. But I focus on one thing. I forget the past, all the failures there, and look forward to what lies ahead, my rich relationship with God being yoked together with God, listening to God. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. As you spend time with God, you are drawn to him and his directives. This command actually is crazy if you spend time with him. Realistically, this command is for probably folks that don't know God well. Because as you spend time with the Lord, you want more. You can't believe it. So love him with every fiber of your being. 
Love him with all of your heart, which is emotional. Love him with all your soul, which is your physical being. Love him with all your mind, which is intellectually. Which brings us to the next part of the great command. Love your neighbor as yourself. It actually comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Now, although Jesus sees this as one command, I think the order is important. Having a relationship with God, walking in the Spirit, being yoked with Jesus enables you to love your neighbor, enables you not to walk by the naked, bloody man on the side of the road. Because we don't just naturally and normally do that. We're way too important to stop. We've got so many other plans. There are other things that are on our calendar and our agenda. It's so inconvenient. This is going to cost me money. Are you serious? You stay. I keep walking. Jesus clarified and illustrated this commandment near the end of his life. And let me put it in context. Right before Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples at the Last Supper, he washed his disciples' feet. He took some water, took a bowl, kind of took off his outer garment, put on the garment of a servant, had a towel wrapped around his waist, and went from person to person, washing their feet. That alone shouted, but when he got to a man named Judas, he washed Judas's feet. You see, washing anyone's feet was inconvenient. It was demeaning. But washing someone's feet who you knew in just minutes or hours would be, well, turning you over. After washing their feet. The disciples had a little bit of a hard time with that. There was some kind of interaction. But Jesus sat down. All the disciples, their mouths are open. And he said this, John chapter 13 and verse 34. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. And you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world you're my disciples. Now, again, a, a new commandment? This was not new as if this is the very first time they've heard this. But Jesus said, I want to give you some different perspective. You're not understanding what love is. Love is inconvenient. Love is getting down on your knees. Love is serving others, even those that don't like you. 
Jesus is saying loving others means humbling yourselves, putting other needs above yours and serving them. And the story of the Good Samaritan helps us understand that loving is always, please hear this, always inconvenient and never depends on appreciation. Loving never fits into your calendar. Never. It never allows you to plan in a budget. Never. Not even once. Circumstances and situations come before you and me, and we have a choice. You know, one of the ways that has helped me just kind of look at people differently is that if I treat others like the guest of honor, I probably am treating them well. Think about it. If somebody just kind of shows up at your house, it's kind of inconvenient. And, oh, man, it's that little six-year-old next door. He comes in, he's grimy, he's gross, and don't have time for you today. I get it. And there should be maybe some good reasons. But realistically, as we look at people, Maybe the bloody naked man on the side of the road. How would you treat that man as a guest of honor? What would you do to honor him well? Well, the Good Samaritan taught us how to do that. Let's get another perspective on this. The Apostle John penned his gospel and his letters close to about 60 years after the resurrection. The son of thunder was older now, and he had seen the church birthed and grow. Listen to what John thought was critical for the church. This is what he was going to leave. This was his legacy. This was an older man looking back after pastoring for so many of these years. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11, 14, 16, and 18. You can see it. You can follow along in your scriptures. This is the message you have heard from the beginning, John writes. We should love one another. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we, John writes, ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Dear children, let's not merely say we love one another, but let us show the truth by our actions. At 1 John 4, 7, dear friends, let us continue to love one another for love comes from God. That's the only way we can do that. We just finished a series 
called the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus gave us a summary in Matthew 7, verse 12. Do unto others what you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that was taught in the law and the prophets. Paul writes to a Galatian church in chapter 6. He says, so let's not, tire, let's not get tired of doing what is good. That alone is convicting. Doesn't that get tiring? Honestly. Not that we're all doing that much good, but maybe we are. Am I going to do this again? Am I going uh, let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, whenever we walk by the naked, bruised up, bloody man, The scripture does not say whenever we have opportunity and fits into our calendar, whenever we have the opportunity and I have spare change. <laughs> whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone. Ooh, time out. I wouldn't get anything done all day long. Well, maybe you won't, but I think you probably will. Let us do good to everyone. And listen to this last one, and I find this unique. Especially to those who are in the family of faith. Especially those Christian brothers and sisters in this church. Isn't that weird that he would have to add that? You would think that would be normal. So if I listen to what the word is saying, loving others show you or me that we love God and that God is living in us. It means this. I will serve other people. I will wash their feet, even those that will betray you. Or parents, how about this? Even though your son and daughter are going to be the most ungrateful people in the whole world and tell you over and over again, I wish I had new parents. I don't want to live here anymore. Life stinks. Serving them means washing their feet. Loving others means forgiving them like Jesus forgives and not holding grudges. Sometimes the forgiving's okay, but you Put it back. Oh, I'll forgive you, but I'm not forgetting this one, baby. You do that one more. Uh, okay. But that's not how Jesus forgave. Loving others means not speaking neg- negatively about them, being slanderous, or hurting their reputations. Ever. Ever. Loving others is not being disrespectful. Loving others is not being unkind, but being gracious and compassionate. Loving others means talking about God and teaching others about your heavenly Father. And ultimately, as I said, helps me tremendously 
treating others like they are the guest of honor. You know, some of you have been around long enough and recognize this towel and even the pitcher. There's no basin here. But one of the things that we have tried to do in our church is encourage our membership to listen to God with all of their hearts. It doesn't mean our members are perfect. It doesn't even mean your pastor is perfect. But what this means is this, is as we listen to God, our community will look different and act different. We hand each new member a towel. Now, I'm not sure what they all do with the towel. But it is a reminder to them that we have been called to love others, to wash each other's feet. Can you imagine how we as a church would stick out differently than anything else in a community if we have God living in us and we love one another? Yes, the church has its issues and the church has its problems. But as each one of us listen to our Lord and each one of us respond to him and as each one of us obey our heavenly Father, there will be no place on the planet like Crosspoint Church or like any other church filled with believers. You see, this is the great commandment because loving God and loving others covers it all. In fact, if I could say this, as you look at the screen, loving God changes us. And loving others changes the world. Next week, we finish up the greats and we talk about the great commission. But before we continue our worship, would you bow your heads with me at the moment? I'd appreciate if you could do that. Because right now, I'd love for you to just have a conversation with God. I'd love for you to reflect I don't know where you stand, and nobody's given grades, A, B, C, or D, or even F, on how you love God and how you love others. But I know this, that each one of us have an opportunity to make a kingdom impact. And it starts with loving God. Spending time with God. Maybe that's what you need to talk to God about. Lord, I need need to do better here. And maybe part of the conversation is, I also need to grow my love for others. Father, I... um, 
I'm not treating others well. In fact, maybe God is even bringing something to your mind right now where you need to go to a brother or a sister. You need to confess how you've hurt them and mend that relationship. So for the next moment, let's reflect. If need be, repent and just share your heart with God. And then in a moment, I will pray. Father, I sense that uh, we have some soft hearts here today. I, I sense that there are some folks, your kids, that have neglected you. Some. And they desire to spend time with you, to learn from you, to love you, to be in your word, to obey you with all of their hearts, enthusiastically, even, Father, when it doesn't seem to make sense. We pray, God, that you would work in our church. You would work in me. You would work in us. That there would be a revival, a commitment. Lord, we're sorry that we have neglected you at times. We have not spent time with you. Our schedules have been too full of us. Lord, work in our hearts. Open our eyes. Help us see you. Would there be a fresh wonder every single day, Father, as we can't believe the God of gods wants to be yoked up with us? And Lord, as you change our hearts, as, as we learn from you and how you loved and how you treated people, would we love our brothers and sisters? Would you do a work? Would you change all of us from the inside out? Would this church and the churches in our area, the churches all over the world, would they be places, Father, that people are just knocking on the doors wanting to be part? Nowhere else are people treated lovingly and carefully and and compassionately like people who walk with you. Thank you, Father. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.